Zeus Sports Podcast, presented by the Columbia Daily Tribune. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. My name is Eric Blum, breaking down Mizzou Sports with you every week here on the show. Joining me as a special co-host this week is the SEC Sports columnist for the USA Today Network and former Tribune Mizzou Athletics reporter Blake Topmeyer. How are you doing, Blake? I'm doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Of, of course. Just, you know... Going into, I guess it was two weeks ago at this point, where at the media days, what would have been your kind of reaction if someone had said on Monday, by the end of this on Thursday, we're going to be talking about SEC expansion and two Big 12 teams as the main topic of conversation coming out of SEC media days? Uh, quite surprised, I think. You know, it was interesting earlier this summer, um, I was down in Lafayette, Louisiana, working on a story on Billy Napier, and uh sat down with Brian Maggard, former uh, longtime Mizzou administrator in the athletic department and now uh, director of athletics there at at Louisiana. And and he mentioned how he thought there was going to be another round of conference realignment coming up in the the near future. And and when Brian said that to me, I took that to mean um, in the group of five level, you know, with the, uh, with the playoff expansion being discussed to 12 teams, uh, and one auto bid coming up uh, for the group of five, if, that, if the playoff does expand in that format, uh, I thought we would see some jockeying at the group of five level, teams maybe trying to get into the American Conference, trying to improve which group of five conference you were in. I was not thinking <laughs> when I had that conversation with, with Brian Maggard in June uh, that perhaps we would see an, uh, another round of realignment so soon at the power five level, this, this admittedly caught me off guard. Um, and, and when I first saw that, that Texas and Oklahoma wanted in to the sec, I thought, okay, well, big deal. There's probably tons of, of power five schools that, that probably want into the sec, uh, if they could have their choice. But, uh, you know, it didn't take very long after that to realize that, uh, that, that Houston Chronicle report where that, that came out of initially that, um, that that had some real legs to it and, and that this thing was, was moving quickly. Yeah, and we actually haven't done an episode in a little while. So, yes, the Texas-Oklahoma news, that was actually, I think, the week before SEC Media Day. So, yes, the Texas-Oklahoma news is new. And you mentioned Brian Maggard. Uh, actually, Missouri Athletic Director Jim Sterk announces that he will step down once his replacement is named, and that will be by the middle of September. And the timing is obviously quite interesting with commentary alignment on, on the horizon and with name, image, and likeness kind of coming into the front and kind of being on the back of the pandemic. And Sterk has talked before about how last year kind of felt like five at times. So just when you heard that Sterk was stepping down, I mean, you worked with him, I think, briefly before you went to Knoxville. Uh, what, what were kind of your thoughts about that? Initially, I was I was puzzled by that uh, because I thought, yeah, I mean, I, yes, they're, they're announcing this as uh, Jim Sterk stepping down, but uh, he, he's getting some <laughs> some money to go to two step down, right? So, uh, some, yep, the remainder of his contract. Yep. Yeah. So that that uh, that I think that tells you what you need to know right there is as as whether this is a actual mutual agreement to part ways or or uh, or the latter. I think it's more the latter. You don't you don't pay someone out 
um, if they're just they're just retiring and riding off into the sunset of their own choice. Um, yeah, so initially I, I was puzzled by this because it's like why does why does Missouri feel need to do this at this time? I mean, it seems like there's there's a lot of good momentum building within Missouri. Uh, if you look at football in particular, you know Eli Drinkwitz coming off of a of a five and five season where I think he exceeded most expectations in year one, recruiting really well. Uh, like I said, I mean, fundraising seems to be going well. Missouri announces the, the plans for the new indoor facility. It seemed like momentum was building and it seemed like a head scratcher to me as why Missouri would desire an athletic director change at this juncture. But you go back to that last coaching search, you know, and the more you think about it, um, you know, Jim Sterk reportedly had wanted to hire Blake Anderson as as Missouri's next football coach, curators said, uh, no, thank you. Uh, go hire someone else. Go try to hire Eli Drinkwitz. And if you don't trust your athletic director to make coaching hires, then I think it, it really erodes in the, the trust that you have in your athletic director in general. So, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, like I said, if you're not going to give your athletic director the freedom to make coaching hires, then then what's that person in that position for? That that's the main reason you have an athletic director. And I, I know there's a lot that goes into the job. Fundraising is a is a key key component of it. But I think the the biggest, at least front facing piece of being an athletic director is uh, is making fires and hires. And ultimately, you know, I think if we made an evaluation after one year, we could say that Missouri made a good hire. And in Eli Drinkwitz. Now, I would have thought all's well that ends well, even though it was maybe a messy process right. to get to that point. Um, however, you know, when you look back on that, I do wonder how much of that plays in into this move. Um, you, you, and, and you could say, well, well, why, why not move, make that move then a year ago? Well, I don't think anybody really was too eager to to make a change at athletic director this time a year ago when uh, everybody was just trying to figure out how they could get through a season amid a pandemic. So it wasn't really the best, the best time to make a leadership change at the, at the top of your organization. Uh, but a year later, maybe it makes more sense. But overall, I think when I look back on Jim Sterk's tenure at Missouri, I would say maybe more good than bad uh, in his tenure. I, I think, you know, I don't know if I would say he knocked it out of the park, but uh, I don't think it was a big swing and a miss either. I, I, I think, Overall, you'd, you'd give a passing mark to Jim Sterk, but heading into this new landscape of college athletics, uh, this new frontier with name, image, and likeness, and one-time transfer exception, so many, so many changes are coming in college athletics. Uh, perhaps it is time for, you know, for Missouri to get a, a new vision and, uh, you know, maybe some some fresh thoughts there. Yeah, and I think that that was kind of my take takeaway too. Is that coming uh, when Jim Sterk took over the job, it was. I don't want to say chaos in Columbia, but not too far away from that. When Mac Rhodes left kind of unexpectedly, you know, I didn't believe Kim Anderson was still the basketball coach, and Barry Odom didn't have that much success in year one as a football coach, which I think was happening right there. And so maybe he was just a transitional athletic director coming from San Diego State who was going to have an original seven-year contract, and it wasn't expected to be extended anyway past 2023. So in that transition was the transition – he made it less messy, and so the guy that comes in now, I think that more so this is not a reflection of Jim Sterk. It's just that Missouri is looking to make the move for the future now as opposed to waiting until Jim Sterk's contract is up and swinging for the fences now and 
you know, maybe they see some of the things happening around the conference, like Tennessee hiring a Danny White coming from UCF, or I don't want to butcher his last name, but Ross Bjork, I guess is how you say it, and then also Greg Byrne, Bryn at Alabama. Those style of athletic director isn't really what Jim Strick is. Jim Strick is a great, uh, I guess, delegator and, you know, has been able to front, but isn't the, you know, Eli Drinkwitz style athletic director that maybe wants to be a little bit more hands-on, and I think Missouri is trying to take a big swing and hopefully not have a whiff at this point in, in, you know, just the transition after having such a long-tenured guy like Mike Alden before Mac Rhodes. And you can look at what Mac Rhodes has done at Baylor, and they've obviously won a national title in a revenue sport since he's been there, and they did really well with Matt Rule. But that was more so, I believe, due to a previous relationship with Matt Rule and already having something here. Because I think he might have been even offered the Missouri job when he was at Temple and declined it when Mac Rhodes was here. Uh, and then more so for basketball-wise was more Scott Drew and his abilities to attack the portal like m- not many people did before him. So I think it's more so not a bad reflection on Jim Sturt that he was asked to step down, but it's more about getting the right, you know, major hire for the future and now to replace Jim Sturt, if that makes sense. Yeah, and when you look at, you know, you mentioned kind of the, the personality of Eli Drinkwith and what that's doing for Missouri right now. You know, he's he's more of kind of the uh, the thump your chest uh, uh, personality a little bit. I mean, if we think back to him at at SEC Media Days, he was he was really holding court up there, whether it be goading Texas, wondering whether horns down would be a, a penalty in the SEC, whether it be needling Arkansas by saying he can't remember the last time that Missouri lost to its SEC West rival, whether it be making fun of himself uh, for picking a a verbal fight with uh, with Kirk Herbstreet last spring, or or making fun of Dan Mullen, uh, <laughs> which he also did. I know. So he did a I mean, few times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Drinkwitz is very much one style, and and Jim Sirk, as as you're alluding to there, is is the opposite of that. And you wonder if Missouri sees this as an opportunity uh, to get someone who's a little bit more of a I don't know if showy is the right word, but uh, for, let's, let's say for lack of a better word, a showy athletic director, someone out there that can create more of a buzz, can be more of a of a front-facing individual, um, can generate some some hoopla. Uh, I mean, obviously, Jim Sirk was doing something when it comes to fundraising because, as I understand it, you know, Missouri had some some real momentum there. So you you can't really fault that. Uh, but in terms of you know whipping this fan base into a frenzy. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think Jim Sturck. That was probably his his strongest suit. Um, so perhaps you know they go out and get someone who more mirrors the personality that you're seeing right now in its football coach. Very true. And uh, we actually had Phil Steele as our special guest this week, just to kind of wrap up, I guess, the entire uh, just Missouri preview, looking ahead to football. Because we actually had our first availability with assistant coaches today, August fourth. Uh, Tomorrow is. Drinkwitz and players for the first time, and then Friday they open up practice. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more with Blake about SEC expansion and his new SEC Network podcast, or USA Today Network podcast about the SEC. But for now, here is uh, my interview early today with Bill Steele. Joining the Medusa Sports Podcast this time is the founder of the Bill Steele College Ball Preview Magazine, Bill Steele. How are you doing, Bill? I am doing great, Eric. So much better this year than last year at this time when wonder if we're playing football. Schedules are changing on a weekly basis. Leagues are canceling and bring coming back. Uh, it's going to be so nice to have fans in the stands. And another thing, 
Last year, first-year head coaches didn't even have the benefit of spring practice. And uh, when I would talk to the first-year head coaches last year, a lot of them really had very little knowledge of the team, hadn't even seen the teams on the practice field. This year, I talked to 110 of the 130 head coaches, and everybody had spring practice. And so it was uh, much more fulfilling conversations. I think I asked you last year, uh, you think you spoke to about, about 110 of the 130, uh, and Eli Driggs was not one of them. Uh, did that change this year? It did. I, I talked to Coach Shrinkwitz. I talked to him when he was at App, and I, I talked to him this year. You know, once again, a lot of first-year head coaches hadn't had the benefit of spring practice. They know how detailed I am. I send over my sheets. They've got every player on them, all my notes on every player, all the stats on every player, and ask them to put the teams in order. And it was it was tough for a lot of the first-year head coaches last year. But a very good uh, conversation. And I enjoyed Coach Shrinkwitz's comment at the, uh, the SEC media days when he was there on the last day. And they said, they were adding Texas and Oklahoma to the schedule, and Coach Trinkwitz said, well, naturally, they're going to appear on our schedule this year, much like uh, the two extra added SEC games last year were Alabama and LSU. Right, yeah, no, that was the first time at SEC Media Days for Drinkwitz. I think it was probably the largest haul because of the pandemic of new head coaches to appear at SEC Media Days with eight because there were four hires in 2020 and four in 2021. Uh and that, just crazy how that happens. Uh, and I guess I, I'm not going to have a better bridge to kind of ask you about it now. Uh, you've been covering college football a while. When you heard Texas and Oklahoma are jumping from the Big 12 to the SEC, what are your, kind of your thoughts and how it might affect college football? Surprised? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've always thought, Eric, that we were heading to four 16-team super conferences. Uh, and now you wonder, is that even going to be the case? Because those are some pretty hefty additions. And is the SEC looking to add more teams? I'm not sure how that's going to work. But uh, for the last three years, I've said four 16-team super conferences. And I think that's probably the way we're headed. Yeah, the, the way I'm most curious, I know this is, this is a Mizzou Sports podcast, but I'm most curious about Notre Dame. Is this the thing that ends their isolationism and they go to the Big Ten or the maybe even the SEC or even the ACC? That's what I'm maybe most curious about. And, you know, uh, if, if this doesn't tip the scales, I'm not sure what will. But uh, Yeah, there's not that many big fish left out there anymore. I mean, uh, after Texas and Oklahoma, you could look at the rest of the Big 12, and there's no real marquee teams there. And then where do you look to add teams? So Notre Dame would be anybody's plum, but I think Notre Dame enjoys its independence, so it would be pretty tough to get them. And, and I think – Excuse me, I think the league that definitely has the best chance of getting them would be the ACC because they're already locked in for all the other sports except for football. And so now uh, getting back to the SEC and Mizzou, uh, I have my preview magazine in front of me. Uh, available at the Missouri, or excuse me, the Columbia Mall, Barnes & Noble. I saw it there a couple days ago. Uh, uh, the Missouri preview itself is on page 74 and 75 of the magazine. Uh, and then the overall SEC preview is a few pages before that because I believe you uh, go into the West before you go into the East. That's correct. Uh, the overall SEC preview is on pages 52 and 53. And if you see there, uh, you put Kentucky third in the SEC East in your predictions and Missouri fourth. Uh, can you just explain kind of the predict uh, thought behind that? Georgia one, Florida two, Kentucky three, Missouri four for us. Uh, probably September 11th, that game being at Kentucky. That was probably my determining thing. And, you know, this year, Eric, I think home field edges, uh, we saw attendance decline in college football most of the past decade, almost on a yearly basis. 
and crowds getting smaller, maybe not as enthusiastic. I think this year attendance from 2019, naturally it's going to be a big increase over last year, but over 2019, I think we're going to see increased attendance and louder crowds. Uh, folks were deprived of going to the games last year. They're going to return with a vengeance. And I think it's going to be a year of the home field edge. So I did weigh that heavily in my assessment of the teams. And if you look at Missouri this year, they do have to play Kentucky on the road. I, I think there's uh, really not a big difference between those two uh, teams, except for the fact Kentucky gets that one at home and uh, uh, probably gives them a, a decent shot at winning it. Uh, you know, if Missouri wants to move up, if they can pluck off Kentucky early, Going back to that home field edge, they get Florida at home on November 20th. I could see Missouri finishing as high as second. I do think Georgia has got the best schedule in the East by far, only having three true SEC road games. And they're all against teams that have first-year head coaches, Auburn, Vanderbilt, and Tennessee. They also, in the crossover games, they do not draw Alabama, Texas A&M, or LSU out of the West. It's a dream schedule for Georgia. To me, they're the clear-cut favorite, but I can make a case for Florida, Kentucky, or Missouri for that number two spot. Yeah, it's hard to pick against Georgia this year, just knowing the talent they have coming back and that schedule. Absolutely. Um, and just so now kind of looking at, you know, you said you talked to Drinkles when he was at App, and you talked to him this year. Just going back to last year a little bit, how surprised were you that Missouri, I guess, I, they ended up 5-5, five and five, but they're a couple plays away from maybe being 6-4 and four or uh, maybe even 7-3, and three, just if, you know, they didn't get hit with a really bad COVID bug at the end of the year. How surprised were you that they kind of exceeded expectations a little bit? I was very surprised. You know, when uh, I had my predictions for Missouri based, and then when they drew Alabama and LSU out of the West, I was like, whoa, uh, you know, where are they going to finish? And they were only favored in three games last year. Uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Arkansas, and South Carolina were the only times they were favored all year. Other than that, we were an underdog. So pulling upsets against a team like LSU was at that a major feather in the cap pulling an upset against Kentucky and uh were two big big games for Missouri last year so that was when they stood at 5 and 3 I was pretty shocked that Missouri got there. So Coach Shrinkwitz is, is you one year at app outperform my expectations and he did that again last year. So I I know you I know you say all college football but to to kind of make the difference that he's made this quickly is that common I mean a lot of people are paying attention to kind of his personality and alongside the comments he kind of made at SD Media, he also said he asked if Horns down was going to be a penalty in the SEC directly to Greg Sankey. And, you know, they look at his recruiting and how it's kind of setting all these rankings, you know. Is being this transformative this early across the country kind of a, you know, a, a usual thing? Or is Drinkwitz also kind of being a trendsetter in that way as well? Uh, I would say that uh, there are a good number of coaches that come in and make an immediate impact. There's a coaching change for a reason, and generally the coaches bring in a new attitude, and if you win early or competitive early, the team starts to buy in and, and maybe play with a little bit of a uh, different level than they did the year before. So I have seen first-year head coaches have great success uh, early on, uh, but it's not something that's, uh, you know, over 50% of the time or even over 30% of the time. So he's, he's in a, a good group of coaches there. Looking at Missouri's roster, kind of who stands out to you this year? 
Well, you know, first of all, you start with the quarterback. And I know Connor like didn't have great stats last year, 7-6 ratio. But when I talked to Coach Strinkwitz, he told me that uh, he felt that that was partially on Bazelak and partially on him, that he didn't really trust him in the red zone, didn't call a lot of plays for touchdowns in the red zone, and that's why his touchdowns weren't up higher. That'll change this year. You're going to see him have a much better ratio. And I like what he did as a redshirt freshman last year. Frankly, he impressed me hitting 67% of his passes. And like I said, that touchdown-interception ratio is going to be a heck of a lot better uh, this year than last year. Uh, Tyler Beatty is a guy who he's not – Larry Roundtree as a power back up the middle, but he is a dangerous guy, both receiving uh, and running the football. Uh, I'd like to see him a little bit better between the tackles. Uh, it may happen this year, and if that does, then he could be that all-around running back. Uh, good receiving core. Mookie Cooper coming over from Ohio State I think is going to be a nice addition to go with Kiki Chisholm, who, of course, led the team last year uh, in receiving. Uh, up front on the offensive line, I think Hyron White's probably your top guy up there. Uh, NFL caliber prospect, but also Case Cook, who went to uh, Media Days, big boy uh, on the interior. Defensively, I like Kobe Whiteside at defensive tackle. Uh, he's a 300 pounder, clogs the middle. He's got good leverage, uh, and you know he had two or six sacks two years ago. He's short, uh, but uh, he's got really good quickness. I like that. Uh, and then uh, Trey John Jeffcoat, of course, uh, he's NFL potential, led the SEC in sacks last year. How do you not uh, look at Jeffcoat there as a guy that's going to stand out on the defensive line? Another newcomer on defense, I like Blaze Aldridge, the uh, Rice transfer. A nice replacement for Nick Bolton. I was very impressed with Blaze his entire career at Rice, and he didn't have as good a surrounding talent as he's got here at Missouri. I think he's going to uh, take this year and shine. And then in the secondary, I like Enos Rakestraw. Uh, play 10 games as a true frost. He's got great cover skills. He's competitive. He works hard. Uh, and he's got good size. And then you look at Jalen uh, Carley's uh, the, at, uh, the free safety spot. He's got great range and uh, just natural ability to cover sideline to sideline. So those would be the, the key guys. I'm like, oh, one other guy I've skipped over, uh, Akeel Byers up front on the, the defensive line, uh, the other guy that was at uh, the uh, SEC media days. He'll be a force in the middle. It's good to have that kind of depth inside. For, for sure. Uh, and I know we talked last year, so I want to kind of make the difference this year to last year. Um, last year, you, you know, obviously the production of the magazine was much different than it is this year. Can you just walk me through either because of the hopefully be on the back side of this pandemic or just, you know, differences in general, how it worked going from 20 to 21 with the production of what is a 352, 303-page magazine? Yeah, well, last year was really unique in the fact that uh, we were full force on the magazine, and then all of a sudden Ohio got shut down for six weeks, so none of my staff could even come to work. It was just me toiling in the office by myself, wondering if I'm even going to put out a magazine. Are we playing football? Do I put out a magazine? And when the staff was allowed to return last year, I said, you know what, Let's start. I'll start talking to the coaches, and we'll see where it goes from there as to whether or not we're going to put out a magazine. And every coach I talked to, uh, based basically said, put the ball in the field, we're going to be ready to play. So I tell you what, after, I talked to about 100 coaches last year as opposed to 110 this year. And uh, like I said, a lot of the first-year head coaches did not have the benefit of spring. So uh, some of them even told me last year, uh, looking at my sheets, they said, Phil, you know more about my team than I do because I haven't seen these guys practice yet. So those were some of the conversations last year. But after talking to the coaches, I was fully confident we were going to play football last year. So we put out the magazine, and, and it, there were some ups and downs. 
downs in the summer, but uh, we did play football, and that was good. Now, this year, every coach I talked to had gone through an entire spring practice. You know, and here's the other thing. Uh, out of the teams, I think almost every team, due to the fact that nobody lost their eligibility last year, everybody's got 14, 15, 16, 17 returning starters this year. And every coach would tell me, you know, we're usually scraping to get it too deep together in the spring. This year we ran three full teams. So if you have very few returning starters this year and there's only a handful of teams, maybe a tough year for you because everybody's got a super experienced team and as much depth as they've ever had. Give an example, Dave Clawson of Wake Forest, talking to him. Uh, they, if you look at their last five games, or last three games the last five years, they've had a, a pretty poor track record. And he told me that now with the t- type of depth they have, he doesn't think they'll wear down at the end of the year. So keep your eyes on Wake Forest late November. They may be a better team than usual because of the depth this year. Missouri uh, does not play Wake Forest, but they do get an ACC school in the regular season or maybe overall for the first time, I think, in 11 years at Boston College. Uh, just kind of working through Missouri's schedule. Uh, we talked about the Kentucky matchup, but kind of working your way down. What, what, what do you see? What stands out to you about maybe facing a North Texas or a Texas A&M or the rest of these teams? Yeah, and Jeff Halfley was one of those first-year head coaches last year with low expectations, uh, and they went 6-5, and five, and they've got Phil Jerkovic, who is a Notre Dame transfer that really came in and did a fantastic job. This guy's one of the top quarterbacks out of high school. He's a PS number four, my number four-rated quarterback out of high school. Uh, they've got Travis Levy in the backfield and Ohio State transfer, much like Missouri, with Jalen Gill, a wide receiver. Zay Flowers, a dangerous playmaker. And you look at their offensive line, Eric, and you look at their stats last year. Now, remember, they were switching offensive schemes, going from Adazio's uh, two tight end offense to more of a spread offense. But still, they only averaged 3.1 yards per carry, and they gave up 28 sacks. But all five of these guys on the offensive line are like NFL-caliber dudes. So you got to think their offensive line is going to be vastly improved this year. They did not play to the level of their talent last season, but they have talent on the offensive line, and they should be pretty good. Now, defensively, I think they'll be better than last year, but that was probably their weakness, gave up 417 yards per game. But uh, that's going to be a tough test for uh, Missouri, and it's on the road. So uh, it's going to be a pretty difficult game. For sure, yeah. That, that game against Boston College is September 25th and looks to be, out, uh, I guess, their second-to-last uh, non-conference game. And I know you, you more so look at the football side of things and maybe the athletic, athletic director side of things, but it's been, it was big news around Missouri. And I'm curious to get your you know, some of just your thoughts and your piece on you know, Missouri's AD, Jim Strick, stepping down last Monday, knowing coming right off of the thought of conference kind of happening right as Navy's image blankets is kicking in. Just the timing of that just seems a little too coincidental uh, at, at, at times. But just what role do you think kind of this, the college landscape kind of has and maybe a decision like that happening? And, you know, what what is the ideal thing for a football, a successful football program to have in an athletic director? Well, you know, the athletic director, in my mind, his main job is hiring the head coach. <laughs> and uh, I think he made a pretty good hire in Eli Drinkwitz. So uh, I think Missouri's in okay shape in the fact that Drinkwitz is there. He's the guy that runs the team. And uh, I'm, I'm not too uh, worried about the effect of the athletic director on the Missouri football team because Drinkwitz is going to be there for quite some time. Fair fair enough. Uh kind of go into the rest of Missouri's schedule. Uh uh, CMO's there. Central Michigan, do, they, do you think Central Michigan in the opener maybe provides any kind of an upset chance to them, or how, how, how do you look at uh, the Chippewas, I guess? 
Yeah, two years ago, Central Michigan was in the MAC title game, and uh, if you look at how uh, they do under Jim McElwain, they, they do a pretty good job, and they've got uh, a Washington transfer, a quarterback, and Jacob Sermon. So, you know, we talked about how Jerkovic is a PS number four, Jacob Sermon's a PS number seven quarterback uh, coming over from Washington, or the number seven rated quarterback. Uh, he's very athletic, he can get out of trouble, and I, I think he's going to be a big-time addition, one of the top quarterbacks in the MAC. They've got a deep running backs, Lou Nichols, Kobe Lewis, Darius Bracey, uh, Khalil Pimpleton is the wide receiver you got to watch. This guy is. Uh, he's only 5'9", but they use him everywhere. He's going to be a return man, fly sweeps. Uh, he's a very electrifying player, a lot of big plays out of him. You look at their offensive line, everybody back on the O-line. They've got a, a left tackle in Bernard Raymond that's an NFL-caliber guy. And defensively, they're going to be pretty strong this year as well. So I, I think Central Michigan, with 20 returning starters, yeah, everybody's got everybody back this year. Uh, the only reason I didn't pick them higher in the West was probably their schedule. They have to play at Miami, at Ohio, at Western Michigan, at Ball State. So I'd have an underdog in four games. But I think talent-wise, they're right there with all the teams uh, at the top of the MAC this year. And then how about uh, North Texas as well? Uh, I know that, you know, in, in being in between Josh Heupel's return to Missouri and Texas A&M coming in for homecoming, just, you know, what do you think about the Mean Green? Well, uh, Seth Luttrell has done a pretty good job there, uh, and they're going to have an offense that uh, puts some points on the board. Austin and they, they add a transfer in Jace Reuter. And uh, what's with Missouri taking on all these transfer quarterbacks? Uh, Jace Reuter comes over from North Carolina. He's my number 38-rated uh, QB there. I love their backfield. Oscar Attaway is worth the price of admission. This guy's like a bowling ball in there. He's big, physical, can run, good vision. They also have Isaiah Johnson, so I, I like their depth of running back. You look at the receiving core, DeAndre Torrey and, and Jair Shorter. Shorter looks like a an NFL guy. He's 6'2", 215. He's a, uh, he can stretch the field, and once he gets a ball in his hands, uh, he is tough to bring down. You look at the offensive line this year, they've got four starters back. Defense has been the problem there at North Texas. They gave up 522 yards per game last year, but they've got some key players. Deion Novell uh, up front on the defensive line is a 330-pounder that clogs the middle, and John Davis at cornerback is a, a good shutdown corner. So those two pieces are a good thing to build on. North Texas is going to be improved, and, and they've, they've made two bowls under Seth Luttrell despite losing records in the both in those years. They've made other bowls as well, but uh, they'll be competitive, I think. But I like Missouri to win that one. Very cool. Just kind of looking now uh, in the South- Southeastern Conference-wise, I'm guessing Alabama-Georgia would be your pick to be in the SEC Championship game? It is, but if you are looking for somebody to break up the, that, I wouldn't look to the East. Like I said, Georgia's got a cake schedule. Uh, they're going to win the East this year. But you look to the West, believe it or not. And, you know, here's the thing that a lot of people, I'm, I'm listening to everybody talk about Alabama because they just won the national title again last year. And uh, so the, the general assessment, they'll be number one coming into the season. Everybody's picking them to win the national title. You do realize they did not win the national title in 18 18- or 19, and in fact, they didn't even win the SEC West in 2019. So it, they do not win the national title every single year. And the one team I think that could upset the apple cart is Texas A&M. And with Texas A&M, uh, they're a team that was my number one surprise team last year. Coming off a five-loss season, I thought they had a great shot at the playoff. They almost made it there. Selection Sunday, they were right there with Ohio State. They had the best defense in the SEC last year. They got nine starters back on defense. 
Uh, Leal at the defensive end spot is going to be a stud in the NFL and just the NFL guys throughout. In fact, Jimbo Fisher's got four great recruiting classes there. I get to the third team, going over the team with Coach Jimbo Fisher, and in my head when he's talking about the guy, I'll say, wow, this guy is third team? That's how deep they are. Now, your biggest question mark with A&M is the offensive line, right, because they lose four starters. But last year I was talking to Coach Fisher, and we're going over the Joe Moore Award at the end of the year because his team is one of the finalists. And he told me, Phil, we're probably going to be more talented on the offensive line next year. And then after spring practice was over this year, he said the same thing. And you look at the four guys they lost, only one of them got drafted. Coach Fisher feels all five of this year's guys are draftable. So they may have a better offensive line than last year. I like Haynes King, a quarterback. they got the best set of running backs in the country. And last year they had a very inexperienced receiving core. This year they're very experienced in the receiving core. In fact, I rate it number five. And if you go back and look at last year's Alabama-Texas A&M game, uh, while they lost that game by 28 points, if you watch the first half, it was really four plays that changed the entire game. They really played Alabama even on almost every snap. They get that game at home in College Station. It's week six. The offensive line should be well in order by then. I think A&M has the potential to upset Alabama uh, on that big day on uh, October the 9th and could be a threat to win the West this year. And Missouri gets them a week later in Columbia on October 16th. Good, good timing. Good timing. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's going to be a, a big game, uh, obviously, having a team that, if, if they're that good again, coming to Columbia. Because, I mean, last year Alabama was came to Columbia week one. Uh, so that that did happen. Uh, just looking kind of nationally, I mean, if you had to say right now who would be your title pick or who would be in the playoffs, any, any kind of that. Oh, yeah. I I went way out on a limb this year, Eric. I went uh, with Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and Oklahoma. How's that for being a risk taker this year? Uh, Oklahoma, I guess, would be the risk out of those four. (laughs) And here is the risk. I picked Oklahoma to win the national title this year. You go back to last year's playoff. Uh, the four teams that were, were participating in the playoff last year are four of those teams that only have 9, 10, or 11 returning starters, and all four lost their starting quarterback. Oklahoma is a different animal this year. In fact, Oklahoma, when you look at them, whenever uh, Lincoln Riley has had a veteran quarterback, he's had two Heisman winners and a Heisman finalist. And I think Spencer Rattler probably wins a Heisman this year. He's my favorite uh, coming in. Uh, he's got... Some great running backs. Kenny Brooks is a two-time 1,000-yard rusher that opted out last year. He's back. They bring in Eric Gray from Tennessee. They've got my number two set of receivers in the country and my number one rated offensive line. Here's a shock. Oklahoma's got the best offense in the country. They usually do under Lincoln Riley. But defense is the big difference. You know, last year they gave up less yards and less points than Alabama did, 21 points per game. And this year they got eight starters back on defense. My number three rated defensive line, number nine set of linebackers, and number three DBs. In fact, uh, you look at their three playoff games that they've lost under Lincoln Riley. They've given up 54, 45, and 63 points. This year they actually have a defense to go along with that offense. They're also solid on special teams. And that's why I picked Oklahoma with 15 returning starters to uh, win it all this year. It would be their first national title since 2000. And that was with new SD head coach Josh Heifel, correct? Mm-hmm. So It is correct. It all comes first full circle eventually. Well, Phil, thank you so much for your time. As always, sir, I appreciate it. Uh, and anything else you want to add before we uh, get off the line here? Yeah, real quick, Eric, and that is for your listeners, we are available exclusively at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million this year. So if you're out and about 
uh, don't waste a lot of gas looking all over. Just go to Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or you can get the magazine on philsteel.com. 352 pages. I feel like it's 130 different media guides rolled into one. Uh, two full pages on each team, except it's even better because all the information is on the same spot on every page for quick, easy reference. So head to Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or philsteel.com. Yep. Uh, the, the magazine is available at Columbia Mall off Stadium Drive uh, at the Barnes & Noble there. There are Books A Million and Barnes & Noble in the St. Louis and Kansas City areas. So you can get it at any one of those two places. Phil, thank you so much. Great talking with you every year, and we'll catch up soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Hey, great great talking football with you again, Eric. Always enjoy our conversations, my friend. We would like to thank our sponsors for the Columbia Daily Tribune's Mizzou Sports Podcast, University of Missouri Healthcare. University of Missouri Healthcare is proud to be the official sponsor of MU Athletics. Blue Events. Let Blue create the perfect event. Their passion for food, service, and presentation ensures that you will have a seamless and memorable event, no matter the size. They will work with you to bring your vision to life. Phyllis Nichols, State Farm Insurance. There when things go wrong, here to help life go right. The Mizzou Sports Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today. Follow Mizzou football with the Tribune's Tiger Extra newsletter. Sign up at ColumbiaTribune.com slash Tiger Extra for stories, galleries, and podcasts in your inbox every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. And now, back to the show. Thank you once again to Phil Stewart for joining us on this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast. Always great to have him on every year. A little bit later this year than we usually had him on. I usually like to have him on before media days, but definitely nice to kind of have him after to talk about all the news that's happened since the last time I actually did a podcast. And uh, so, Blake, I, I kind of teased it before we got into the interview with uh, Phil, but kind of fill us in on uh, what you're doing these days. Obviously, you were a Zoo beat writer. Then you covered, I believe, four seasons um, as the Tennessee beat writer for the Knoxville News Sentinel. And tell us about your new role and your new podcast. Yeah, transitioned into a, a new space in uh, in March, I believe it was, as, as a columnist weighing in, kind of on the SEC at large, um, and and bouncing from from program to program with with my opinions, um, you know, as as topics arise throughout our, our USA Today network uh, platforms, and uh, yeah, the podcast that you mentioned, SEC Football Unfiltered. We're about a month into that podcast. And uh, having a lot of fun over there. Uh, I co-host that with uh, John Adams, who's a longtime <laughs> columnist of SEC football based in Knoxville. Uh, most uh, m- most intensely writes columns on, on the Tennessee Vols, but John has been all over the South. He's uh, he's worked in Jacksonville, Florida. He's worked in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. He's 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 worked in uh, Louisiana, as John puts it. You know, he's co- he's covered Bear Bryant and Nick Saban. He's covered. Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. He's been around for a long time, so he's a great co-host to have on that podcast. We have a lot of fun. Uh, as we say, no no program is above rebuke. No one is above criticism on our podcast. Uh, we try to let it kind of fly free and uh, and share our unfiltered opinions. So, yeah, uh, we'd appreciate it if you could check us out there, SEC Football Unfiltered. Uh, we've had some some conference expansion podcast we'll probably do at least one more of those as we dive into our thoughts about expansion and then really start to turn our attention uh forward toward the 2021 season here in the coming weeks 
Yep, it's, it's available on Apple Podcasts, which is how I listen to this and mo- how most of you probably listen to this show. Uh, I listened to the action to the, the episode of SEC Expansion last night. Uh, I was on the road for a little bit, and uh, I think that that's, it, it's a great kind of topic to think about. And you guys were mentioning now that the move to 16 is all but official. You know, you guys kind of pitched the idea that if the SEC goes to 18 or to 20, who would those schools kind of be? And, you know, it, it, it's all speculative. But I believe your four choices were Clemson, Florida State. No, Clemson, you didn't like Florida State. Clemson, maybe Virginia Tech, North Carolina, and maybe a Notre Dame was where you were at? Yeah, my, my biggest pie-in-the-sky proposal was uh, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, and USC. Now, that's that might be reaching into fantasy land there, but, you know, a couple months ago we might have said that uh, that the SEC uh, adding Texas and, and Oklahoma was just an, a figment of someone's imagination, so we see how, how quickly these things can change. But, yeah, the real pie-in-the-sky proposal that I offered was uh, was getting a West Coast anchor in USC uh, telling Ohio State that, hey, we're thinking about creating our own playoff and just leaving college football playoff. Uh, do you want in this or do you not want in this? Uh, and trying to, to, <laughs> to strong-arm Ohio State into joining uh, as you create this super league and, and threaten to create your own playoff. And then, uh, and then seeing if you can get uh, a Clemson and Notre Dame in the fold as well. Maybe uh, – Maybe less pie in the sky would be uh, taking it down a notch and, and chasing uh, someone like Clemson, North Carolina, or Virginia Tech. Uh, John's a little more bullish, uh, my co-host on, on that podcast. Uh, he's a little bit more bullish on the idea of adding Florida State maybe than I am. John uh, is uh, is maybe remembering the, the Florida State glory years uh, a little bit more favorably. Of course, you know, it really wasn't that long ago that Florida State was, was winning a national championship for Jimbo Fisher in the 2013 season. It's just been so bleak uh, for Florida State the last few years. Uh, I guess I'm more of in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately mindset. Uh, I think the idea of getting in North Carolina where you could bring in the really bring in the Charlotte media market strongly, um, it would be a strong basketball presence as well for whatever that's worth. Um, and the momentum that, that North Carolina is building under Mac Brown and, and football, I think North Carolina uh, would make a ton of sense if the SEC had any interest in them. But you know, like I said, so much of this is just, is just fun banter. We, we know how it goes this, this time of year. We're, we're always talking about this type of stuff. Um, it's fun water cooler talk, but as we've seen you know, with the Texas-Oklahoma Situation. I mean, what can be water cooler talk can can become reality real fast, and and I don't think anybody out there thinks that Texas Oklahoma is the last domino that's going to fall in this conference realignment. I, I think this is just part one, and, and we're now going to see some more jockeying for position. And whether that means the SEC expands from 16 up to 18 or 20, I don't know, but I certainly would rule it out. Um, I mean, I think we could we could really get into some, you know, move move from five power conferences to like three or four uh, mega conferences. I don't think that's that's really all that far-fetched at this point. And if that happens, I look for, for SEC to more set the tone and be out there out front and trying to get the, the schools that it wants rather than trying to play catch-up. I mean, right now it's it's ahead of the pack. It's It's got two big hitters that it wanted in its conference then. And to me, why stop there? You know, <laughs> um, I, I think some people think, well, you need to play nice with other conferences. You, you don't just need to, to cannibalize everybody else. But college athletics is is more so than ever moving into a, a dog-eat-dog landscape. And, 
Um, it's it's better to to eat than be eaten, and I think uh, you know the SEC is is really flexing its muscle here. Then how do you think? I mean, Missouri for the most part is expected to be a spectator. It's not like well, Texas and Oklahoma are coming in. We're going to jump to the Big Ten. That I, I highly doubt Missouri is going to do anything to eat popcorn and just watch. But how right. do you think the landscape revolving around Missouri, especially when you were coming and covered Missouri, kind of in the early days of the SEC? affects them here? Is it just they reap the benefits of everybody else and got the hard part out of the way a decade ago in the last round of realignment when Colorado and Nebraska, Rutgers, Maryland were part of that same group? Or how do you view it? Is anybody getting to work on that Mike Alden statue yet? I mean, maybe they ought to propose propose that because in hindsight, you know, I always say that like grading coaching tenures or athletic directed director tenures is almost like grading a presidency. You're much better off like with 10 or 20 plus years of, of hindsight uh, to be able to to accurately grade how, how strong someone was as a coach or an athletic director, better to to wait a while and gain some more perspective. And point being, the more and more I look back on Mike Alden's move to be able to to uh, to slip Missouri into the SEC amid the the last round of realignment, it just it looks so strong in hindsight. You know, at the time. You thought, is Missouri going to be trampled in the SEC? Well, it didn't take long before Missouri won a couple of East titles, uh, you know, in, in 2013 and 14 and played for the conference crown. Now, obviously, uh, didn't win the conference crown, but none, nonetheless was representing the East. I think, by and large, um, Missouri has represented itself fairly well in, in even in this move to the SEC. Are they going to be the, the power broker in the conference? No, uh, they weren't the power broker in the Big 12 either. They're not going to be the power broker here. But I think they're much, much better off, you know, having made the move to the SEC when they did. Um, now, as we look at it, the, the Big 12, once again, for the second time in, uh, in about a decade, is is left to wonder whether it's going to be even still standing going forward. So, uh, yeah, I think Missouri is just going to sit back and say, uh, thank goodness we were uh, we were able to get a spot to the party uh, in the last round of, of realignment and credit Mike Alden, um, you know, for being – for being the athletic director in charge that, that pushed more Missouri forward in that direction. And in a move that I, at the time, I think you, you really could question because Missouri lost a lot of its rivalries. It, it looked just like a money grab, which I'm sure in, in a lot of ways that was the top motivation, but not only was it a money grab, as, as we're seeing now, it positioned Missouri to be in a really strong place going into this, this new frontier. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I, there might have been a lot of skepticism at first, but the move is looking smarter by the minute. And, and I think getting back Oklahoma, getting back Texas is good, especially, I mean, Missouri has non-conference matchups in football already scheduled for the next 10, 12 years with Kansas and Illinois. And so I don't see Illinois ever wanting to leave the Big Ten. And can't, the related rumor is Kansas might want to join the Big Ten. So, I mean, unless you go there, you're not getting those back. I think getting, you know, Big 12 rivals back isn't a bad thing. I mean, and whether Arkansas or not as a rivalry is, is is up for debate, but the fact that it's up for debate and not a clear no, in my opinion, is a good thing, you know, a couple of years into really some, you know, heated games between the schools, you would think. It's been Missouri kind of lopsided for a little while, but last year it seemed like it was more so the fire starter. It's going to take a little while to get going. Just kind of now just looking into Missouri in this year, uh, this year, excuse me, how do you think Missouri fits into the landscape of the SEC football-wise in 2021? It seems like it's Georgia's – the SEC is Georgia's for the taking, and there might not be anything anyone can do about it. But how do you think they fit in kind of as a whole? 
I think, um, like a lot of people, yeah, I have I have Georgia atop the East. I I don't see the gap uh, between Georgia and, and Florida maybe being just this this great canyon that Florida can't possibly leap across. Uh, you know, I think it's 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 not automatic that Georgia is going to going to win the East. But I think they're the clear favorite, and I think I think Florida is the clear favorite to finish second in the East. After that, um, you know, I, I kind of follow the the mindset of, of a lot of folks out there and think that uh, Missouri and Kentucky are, are going to be battling for, for that number three position, uh, which I think is, is where Missouri needs to be long-term. I think there's no reason why Missouri should, should settle for being in the, the five, six, seven range in the East. I think they've proven in a lot of years uh, they can be in the top four in the SEC East. I think that's where they need to be long-term. I think if Eli Drinkwitz keeps recruiting at the level he's been recruiting, uh, he can he can keep Missouri there long term. I mean, I was super super impressed that Missouri was able to get a commitment uh, from Sam Horn out of the state of, of Georgia, the four star quarterback. I mean, they outdueled Tennessee, they outdueled Michigan State. You know, it's not it's not every day that Missouri is getting <laughs> getting quarterbacks of of Sam Horn's recruiting ranking uh, to commit to their program. I mean, this is a guy I believe that's in the uh, the twenty four seven sports composites. Uh, top 100 national rankings. I'm not talking national top 100 for quarterbacks. I'm talking top 100 uh, for all prospects. You know, Missouri's Missouri's not signing that many top 100 uh, quarterback prospects. Correct. Uh, so that, I, I was really really impressed by that. Uh, I like what they have coming back. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why I put Missouri third rather than fourth in the East, I, I gave them the nod over Kentucky is. We know what Missouri's got at quarterback. Uh, I think they got a good one. We don't know what Kentucky has at quarterback, and I know that's that's so often the case. And and Mark Stoops is kind of a mastermind at playing that smoke and mirrors game and making making his quarterback situation uh, work despite the obvious hurdles that Kentucky sometimes faces there. But I'd rather um, I'd rather have Connor Basilek than than what Kentucky has, which is a mystery at quarterback. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've got Missouri third in the East. I think they should be disappointed if they don't finish uh, in the top three in the East, or at the very least in the top four in the East. Uh, you know, you, you want to you touched on Missouri's rivalry with with Arkansas, and and kind of final thoughts on this this conference expansion. I think that's my favorite. Yeah, I think that, I think that's my favorite part of this expansion. Like we all know these expansions are motivated by TV contracts and money and, and adding more power. That's, that's what drives uh, this expansion. It's not driven by geography or matchups or rivalries. However, I do think one of the subplots of this expansion that I'm really excited about is the restoration of some rivalries that we lost from the last round of conference realignment. I mean, the last round of conference align, realignment, not just in the SEC, but really in every conference, it just butchered so many rivalries. And Missouri, as you mentioned, was included in that. Now, this doesn't restore everything, but if you look at this this round of expansion, we get back Texas and Texas A&M. I thought that that was one of my favorite college football rivalries. I mean, usually played right around Thanksgiving, um, oftentimes two top 25 programs. It was a rivalry that, you know, in the last 20 years of that rivalry was not necessarily dominated by one side or the other. We kind of saw it swing in one direction and then the other every few years. Not only do you get that back, you get back Texas, Arkansas from the old Southwest Conference days. And in Missouri's case, you get back one of their best rivalries dating back to the Big Eight in, in Missouri, Oklahoma. Now, I know, by and large, that's been a one-sided rivalry 
that's been dominated by Oklahoma, but I still think that ranks among the top rivalries that Missouri lost uh, when it left the Big 12 in favor of the SEC. So I, that's just selfishly, as, as someone who likes college sports and someone who likes college football, I think that's probably my favorite part about this realignment is getting back, uh, you know, right there, right off the top, three really, really good rivalries, three really important rivalries that were lost by the last, uh, uh, by previous rounds of, of realignment. You know, in, in Arkansas's case, you go all the way back to the 90s when, when they joined the SEC. But, uh, but in the other two cases, Texas, Texas A&M and, and Missouri, Oklahoma, those were rivalries that were lost when those schools came into the SEC in 2012. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited about the, the restoration of yeah, thank you so much, Blake, for joining me on this episode of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. Just to give a quick recap, you can catch Blake and John's new podcast, uh, SEC Football Unfiltered. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's wherever you listen to this, it's probably there. Uh, I think that's a fair assessment to make. Uh, and, yes, yeah, where can everybody check out your stories? I guess you don't technically have a home paper anymore. It's just appearing throughout the net system, right? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of syndicated, I guess, really throughout the South. Um, the, most of my work, is uh, is usually appearing uh, on the National Tennessean, um, but uh, as far as other columns, it's sort of topical. Whoever I'm writing about that day, it's usually appearing in those local markets. Um, so yeah, from time to time, uh, you'll you'll be seeing my work. I, I suspect uh, on the Columbia Tribune. I, I know I, I had a chance to to chat with uh, with Eli Drinkwitz earlier this year, and and uh, I'm, I hope and and I'm sure some of your your readers probably had a chance to check that out, and uh, you know, here and there, I, I, I hope to be able to weigh in on on Missouri. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, enjoyed my my four years covering the Tigers, and, and now in my new role, I, I don't plan to be a total stranger uh, when it comes to Missouri. So, so hopefully, we'll we'll have an opportunity to weigh in here and there, uh, if nothing else, uh, on our our podcast, SEC Football Unfiltered. There, uh, we'll have some. Some talk about Missouri, I'm sure, particularly um, if Eli Drinkwitz is able to continue uh, this upward momentum for that program. I think that sounds like something great to look forward to, and uh, we have obviously have way more media abilities coming up. Uh, we got some of the assistant coaches today, and so we'll be doing more frequent episodes. Hopefully we can get a uh, more permanent co-host in here, but thank you so much for taking the time to join me on today's episode, Blake, and uh, those listening to this usually, thank you so much for listening as always, and we'll see you next time.